If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Today on Soundtrack Alley Spotlight, I'll be delving into the pulp hero The Rocketeer. I'll gush over the film with director Joe Johnson, and I'll chat about the effects and what came out of this film. I'll also discuss James Horner's amazing score for this really underrated film. It all begins now. I am Randy Andrews, your host. Today, I'll be discussing The Rocketeer on this superhero-themed show that shows us a hero that doesn't have superpowers, but uses his wits and cunning to win his girl over and save the day. Let's chat a little bit on the film. The character of Neville Sinclair was loosely modeled after Errol Flynn, who was suspected even of being a Nazi spy. During the fight scene on board the Zeppelin, now we're going to the end of the movie here, Cliff says to Neville, Where's your stuntman now, Sinclair? To which Neville replies, I do my own stunts. The line is in reference to Timothy Dalton's time as James Bond, since he's known for being the only Bond actor to perform most of his own stunts. In the original graphic novel, Cliff Secord's girlfriend is called Betty Page, not Jenny Blake. Dave Stevens, the creator of the comic, based the character Betty Page upon his real-life friend, 1950s pinup girl Betty Page. She would not allow her name to be used in the film, so they used Jenny Blake. The decision to cast Billy Campbell as Cliff Secord caused some mixed emotions amongst Disney executives. Now, with Joe Johnston and Dave Stevens, they believed Campbell was perfect for the role, but Disney wanted an A-list actor. Johnston eventually convinced Disney otherwise. Lothar, who's played by Tiny Ron, was made up to look like Rondo Hatton, who played similar characters in B-movies which inspired this movie. Ron can be seen out of his makeup in a cameo as one of the two good old boys. He gapes at his companions 
and marvels at the big gopher. Bill Campbell, Paul Sorvino, and Terry O'Quinn appeared as guest roles on Star Trek The Next Generation. Campbell guest starred during the second season, while Servino and O'Quinn appeared in the seventh season. Max Grodenchik and Tiny Ron also played recurring roles on Deep Space Nine. Now, this was Disney's second comic book adaption. Years later, they would distribute most of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, as we see now, Jennifer Conley appeared in The Hulk in 2003, though that film was neither released by Disney nor part of the MCU, and Spider-Man Homecoming, which was in 2017, which was connected to the MCU films, but not released by Disney. Now, Jennifer Conley's husband, Paul Bettany, appears in the Avengers films, which have featured both The Hulk and Spider-Man, when any Valentine and his gang learn that Neville Sinclair is a Nazi, they quit working for him and join up with the FBI agents against the Nazi thugs hidden in the shadows. This reflects the attitude of real-life American gangsters during this era in that they did not like fascism, particularly because Benito Mussolini persecuted the Sicilian families back in the old country nor did any Jewish mobsters like Adolf Hitler. In fact, organized crime was one of the biggest allies the American government and law enforcement had when it came to rooting out Nazi spies and collaborators. Billy Campbell, who once studied commercial art, made sure to read the Dan Stevens graphic novel on which the film is based. He got the part after getting a haircut to make himself look identical to the character in the graphic novel. Let's get into some of the background. In the opening sequence, when Cliff crash lands the GB, Alan Arkin, who's PV in the film, narrowly misses being severely injured when a cable pulling the mock-up of the plane along the runway snapped, striking Mr. Arkin behind one of his knees. The actual GB used in the film was only allowed to land at a very limited amount of time during its time working on the movie, as landings are extremely hard on the landing gear of this particular plane. Miss Mabel is a standard J-1, though it's often mistaken for a Curtis Jenny. Both aircraft were nicknamed the Flying Coffins, as clearly mentioned by PV, because of their incredulously difficult maneuverability. The model, with which Cliff guides to escape from Howard Hughes' warehouse, resembled the Spruce Goose, a plane built by Hughes which was so huge that many people doubted it would ever fly. This explains his it-does-fly comment at the time the film was made. Disney owned the Spruce Goose, and it's rumored that they placed this part in the film as a promotion for the attraction which, apart from the Queen Mary, was the only money-losing Disney attraction in the U.S. The Spruce Goose, actually named the Hughes H-4 Her Hercules, was eventually built and did fly, piloted by Hughes himself on November 4, 1947. Its flight 
was about one mile at an altitude of about 70 feet. It never flew again. The GB racer was nicknamed the Widowmaker in the flying coffin because it was certainly incredibly hard to fly and was prone to crashing. Because of its speed and maneuverability, some pilots still raced it despite the danger. The original inventor of the rocket pack was 1930s pulp novel hero Doc Savage, the Man of Bronze, in the original graphic comic book by Dave Stevens. However, because of the licensing considerations, Disney did not seek permission from Con Nast, the copyright holder of Doc Savage, and opted to substitute Doc Savage with the flamboyant billionaire Howard Hughes. Dan Stevens, the writer and artist of the original graphic novel, gave the film's production designer Jim Bissell and his two art directors his entire reference library pertaining to the Rocketeer at that time period, including blueprints for the hangars and bleachers, schematics for buildings with the autogyro, the photos and drawings of the Bulldog Cafe, the uniforms for the Air Circus staff, and contacts for locating the vintage aircraft that were used in the film. Stevens remembers that they literally just took the reference and built the sets, which is cool. Joe Johnston's work on this film is what led to his hiring as the director of Captain America The First Avenger, which you heard this past week on Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. Now this is a specific, very important key fact that many moviegoers have noted with this technology. Disney had the special mechanism built especially for this film. It's called the Shaky Cam. It was designed to be the exact opposite of Steadicam, that is to introduce vibrations into the picture. This was used in the scenes filmed inside the Zeppelin to give the impression the power of the engines. When the movie went to video, the effect didn't transfer too well and was therefore steadied. The Real Dog Cafe, the cafe shaped like a bulldog, was built in 1928 on West Washington Boulevard, but was destroyed by weather in the mid-1970s. A replica has been a part of the streetscape in the Peterson Automotive Museum since its opening in 1994. Now, Neville's comment about the rocket pack being just like in the comic books could be a reference to the fact that the movie itself was based on the comic book by Dave Stevens, and it could also be a reference to the popular, at the time the film is set, comic strip Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, which offer also featured rocket packs. After the Rocketeer escapes from the South Seas Club, there was a sequence in the script when Eddie Valentine and his men give chase and they have to fight with the Rocketeer at the Grauman's Chinese Theater. The Rocketeer rescues a lady from falling, then lands in a wet cement outside the theater, leaving his footprints in the cement before taking off again. The lady he saves signs the footprints as Rocketeer. 
There are conflicting accounts on whether this scene was filmed, but it did wind up in the comic book adaption of the film. Some of the music throughout the movie is somewhat reminiscent of Titanic, which of course uh, is the same uh, composer with James Horner. In the South Seas Club, Neville Sinclair, Nazi, greets Clark Gable. This is based on the little-known fact that Clark Gable was Adolf Hitler's favorite actor. During World War II, Hitler offered a sizable reward to anyone who could capture Gable and bring him to Germany alive and unscathed. Rather funny report. Now let's get into talking about the score. Honestly, there was hope in the ranks of Walt Disney Pictures during the initial production phases of The Rocketeer that a film franchise could be made out of this beloved comic book hero. At a time when superhero films and their franchises based mostly on DC comic characters were being lost, launched with far darker sensibilities, The Rocketeer represented the innocent, straightforward days of American fantasy in the late 1930s and early 1940s. In the story, a test pilot is given the opportunity by an old inventor to experiment with a rocket pack and in the process of astonishing audiences with the new device becomes the target of Howard Hughes, the Nazis who want the technology for several reasons, and a few shady mafia characters. Throw in a beautiful girl and the table is set for a typical Disney adventure. Now, James Horner's score soars in this exhilarating film. The composer commented at the time that despite his love of aviation, a passion that would take his life in, at the age of 61, he had missed every opportunity to write music about flying, and this assignment thus became a labor of love. One of the composer's truly remarkable efforts is that the Rocketeer is a stylistic bridge between his early brass-heavy fantasy scores and his later trends toward the favoring of broadly melodic string romance and drama themes. It's too serious of a score to be classified along with Horner's long list of great works for animated features, but it also has an undeniable touch of magic that reminds us of the light comic book origins of the story. It is in this lighthearted, tingling feeling of magic that makes The Rocketeer a work that has withstood the test of time. Well, originality was the issue for the concurrently bright score for the American tale, Five Old Goes West, Horner only references his own standards for The Rocketeer, occasionally taking stylistic inspiration from his previous scores. And when he does, he often improves upon those sounds, adding to the Rocketeer's appeal over time. There's two primary themes, an ascending four-note motif for Timothy Dalton's villain, and a descending set of phrases akin to Alan Silvestri's Back to the Future time travel motif, and it's used almost constantly in this work. The title theme embodies the magical elements of the rocket and its aviator, serving as the best 
for almost every action cue. With concert arrangement of this theme bookending the score, its consistent extended statements do beg for some variation, and Horner provides some changes in the tempo in the score's two ambitious highlights, which is The Flying Circus and Jenny's Rescue, which alternately is named South Sea's Send-Up. James Horner offers the kind of explosive thematic expositions that made Willow so engaging. Here he augments the long, brassy performances of the theme with the action percussion section using cymbals, chimes, tambourines, triangles, and other light metallic elements to highlight the positive spirit and metallic energy and technology of the story. In The Flying Circus, the rhythmic action motifs mirror Horner's early Star Trek and Aliens writing, but he translates them into their most flighty forms. Later in that cue, some hoedown attitude from Fievel Goes West appears in the form of a banjo, fiddle, and other instrumentation, almost to parody such sounds. But really, for your money, South Sea's send-up is easily one of the more enjoyable cues, along with the Flying Circus, which is absolutely brilliant. This is partly because of the brass-staggered counterpoint performances of the title theme, Two Minutes In. The more fluid performances of the identity of the opening and closing suites feature more of the magical atmosphere. The tingling sensation starts immediately, accompanying the film's opening takeoff sequence with an elegant combination of light electronic tones, closer to even Jerry Goldsmith's style, under a gorgeous solo piano introduction of the theme. The storybook personality continues through both suites and movements in between. Horner's theme is so fluid and aerodynamic that it's built upon drawn-out peaks and valleys meant to accentuate the thrill of flying. Detractors often attack the perpetual use of this theme in the suites and beyond, though Horner does adequately shift its performances between all four corners of the orchestra, often with grand results. Now, the love theme in The Rocketeer also soars with innocence, and it easily eclipses the quality of many of the romantic string themes that Horner would provide for films later in the decade. Heard in the form of short interludes in the two suites and during the action cues, the theme receives a lengthy performance in Jenny, aka the love theme. From the solo horn to a full string ensemble, this theme moves as it's gracefully as Horner's career, it's a strikingly gorgeous layering amidst so much enthusiastic action material that would remind of the same role that the love theme played in Horner's early works with Krull. Another theme that's identified is the villain's theme for Neville Sinclair. Somewhat weaker, but still a very menacing, convincing, evil character that we would hope for for the score that uh, really gives us that conflict between good and evil. 
The rising four-note motif is cartoonishly rendered at times and melds into the, the underscore of several cues before finally making an impact in the latter half of Zeppelin, which the theme's layering is reminiscent of Queen Bavmorda's material from Willow. So overall, critics often lump the Rocketeer in with Willow and The Land Before Time as a simple, adventuresome children's music of significant orchestral volume. But there's one difference. The Rocketeer, with its movie's characters and its larger-than-life comic book hero, it falls under a different classification of fantasy. Horner appropriately bloats every element of his score to create the needed level of bright fantasy. The Rocketeer really gets its full jazz arrangements even when you listen to the score of Begin the Begin. And with the release of the Entrada Record 2 CD disc collection in 2016, it really highlights there's two actual songs that are in the score that really are simply amazing to listen to. So what I'd like to do today is play some of my favorite cues. First, I'd like to play main title, Finding the Rocket, and The Laughing Bandit. What I love about these cues is with the main title, it's just such a joy to hear this music engage with the first flight of a new plane. It's just fantastic and soaring with its simple piano melody. James Horner really outdid himself when he composed this score. Finding the Rocket also uh, actually highlights the mystery of what's to unfold. Even with it being a short cue, it gives us the engagement that we need for the progression of our hero. Then, with the Laughing Bandit, we get to see Timothy Dalton at his finest as a hero in this Errol Flynn-type character. And James Horner plays it that way with the score and how it imitates Max Steiner and even Korngold in its brilliance. I hope you enjoy these cues.
Next on our program, I'd like to play some more action pieces for the film. First, The Flying Circus, A Hero is Born, Bye Bye Bigelow, Cliff at the Club, Cliff as the Waiter, and lastly, South Seas Send Up. What I love about Flying Circus is everything. It builds and it builds, giving us Cliff's hero moment and the adventure that the film has been building to. James Horner gives us the flying theme, the rocketeer theme, and the adventure theme all rolled into a six-minute-plus piece. Hero is Born, Bye Bye Bigelow, shows the danger that the rocketeer really is in. And these last three really highlight the essence of Cliff's character. He cares so much about Jenny, so immensely, that he wants to save her from the danger that she's in. And it builds up to a point in South Sea's send-up, which again, James Horner uses us the illustrious hero theme and the villain theme purely with its evil tones, but with some excellent satisfaction. I hope you can enjoy these.
Sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. Lastly today, you'll hear Rendezvous at the Observatory, The Zeppelin, and lastly, end titles and end credits. These monster cues are really at the heart of the score. It's hard not to leave any of them out. I've omitted at Neville Sinclair's house simply for time. Get the score. Listen to that cue. Enjoy it. These cues are pure adrenaline cues that blow you away, giving us that full hero theme, the love theme in all its glory. I've really enjoyed sharing my love for this film and the score. It will always hold a special place in my heart, and I think you've come to understand why. I'd like to thank Alexander Schiebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. Find his work at xanderscores.com. Find me on social media through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Soundtrack Alley. Email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com. Follow my blogging through soundtrackalley.com. And of course, find the podcast through anchor.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Breaker, Radio Public, and wherever you find your podcasts. So I hope you enjoyed these last cues, and until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com. <laughs>